This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's complicated. Fertility is complicated. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that you never know. You don't necessarily get all the answers. I'm a curious person. I want to know why. Why did it fail? Why did I lose this baby? Why am I having a hard time with this? You're listening to Dr. Alexis Karaspachik on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Many of us are feeling exhausted, anxious, stressed, or burned out, yet feel like we still need to work harder and achieve more. I've gathered a number of leading experts in the field of compassion, habit change, parenting, mindfulness, and social change that have strategies to help. On October 15th and 16th, I am co-hosting the From Striving to Thriving online summit with Mindful Communications and Mindful.org. I'll be interviewing eight thought leaders, including Jed Brewer on the neuroscience of craving, Kristen Neff on self-care, and Rick Hansen on healthy striving. This summit is a powerful and personal one, and there's no cost to attend. I really hope you can join me. My co-sponsor, Mindful Communications, is also hosting a free three-day virtual summit titled Healing Healthcare, a Global Mindfulness Summit on February 8th through 10th, 2022, that you won't want to miss. It's bringing together leading experts, healthcare executives, and thousands of frontline healthcare professionals to explore both individual and system-level approaches to support well-being. You can learn more by checking out the link in our show notes or by registering fromstrivingtothriving.com. That's fromstrivingtothriving.com. Psychologist Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act One from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, to act with parents. Get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis. We've both participated in it ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. Hi, this is Diana here, and this is a two-part series on pregnancy loss and infertility. In the first part of the series, we heard from Dr. Sunita Osborne about strategies for reproductive trauma. And today, Dr. Alexis Karaspachik, myself, and Ann Cushman are going to be sharing our personal stories of loss and infertility. 
If you are sensitive to this topic and it isn't a good time for you to listen, please take care of yourself because we do talk about uncomfortable details in these stories. But we thought it was really important not to censor and to share our honest experiences. I'm going to begin by talking with Dr. Bacic, who is probably one of my best friends in the world and also happens to be a professor of positive psychology. She went to University of Colorado at Boulder and completed her doctoral internship at UC California, Santa Cruz. And now she's a full professor at Metro State Denver, where she teaches positive psychology classes. But there's another side to Alexis that she may not share a lot in her public life, which is she's experienced ongoing trauma associated with infertility and pregnancy loss. Alexis and I are going to begin this podcast by sharing our stories, and I'll be sharing my story about having a stillbirth, as well as our relationship along the way. At the end of the podcast, we'll be hearing from Ann Cushman. Ann Cushman is a leading national pioneer in the integration of mindfulness, embodied meditation, and creative expression. Her essays in spiritual practice and daily life have appeared in the New York Times, Yoga Journal, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Lion's Roar, Tricycle, and many other publications. Today, she's going to be reading a passage from her book, The Mama Sutra, about her experience of having a stillborn. I hope you find this episode helpful if you're a mental health professional, if you personally have experienced reproductive trauma, or if you're supporting a loved one. And please do share it with those that you think that may find it helpful as well. So I'm here with Dr. Alexis Karasbachik, and Alexis and I share in a lot of things. We share in being psychologists. We met in graduate school together. We're also friends and mothers. And we share in pregnancy loss. Our stories are really different. And I thought it would be helpful to have her come on and share her story in combination with me sharing my story, not only to talk about what happened to us, but also within the context of psychology and our perspectives from ACT and positive psychology. So it's good to be here, Alexis. Thank you for having me, Diana. Taking a bit of a deep breath here, because this is totally new for both of us sharing in this way. It really is. Um, And I think you're going to begin with your story, right? Yeah. So here goes. When I had a toddler, I got pregnant again, and I was really excited. I had always planned on having two children. And that pregnancy ended up being completely the opposite of whatever I expected. I was actually really deep into ACT at the time. And I think in some ways, it was preparing me for that experience because I, early, early on in the pregnancy, about two months in, I started bleeding and I was diagnosed with having a hemorrhage in my uterus that didn't impact the baby, but resulted in me regularly bleeding during the pregnancy and having to go to the ER. And because I was practicing ACT at the time, I actually entered into that whole experience with a uh, stance of, I am going to be open to this experience. I'm going to be present in it. I'm going to be psychologically flexible. I'm going to bond with this baby. And I actually think I did pretty well for the first part of it, despite it taking up so much of my life, right? So I'm a practicing therapist. I was an early career therapist, getting my practice going here in Santa Barbara. I was a mom to a toddler and navigating that. And then here I was also with this really unstable pregnancy. One of my memories of that time actually was when I was going to take my licensing exam and I drove two hours to go take the exam and two hours back and it was pretty stressful. But I also remember the sense of accomplishment on the way back if I had just taken my last test I would ever have to take in the field of psychology and then getting back and having another bleed. 
And that experience actually was when I started to go downhill a little bit because I started to also blame myself for the bleeding. Um, I think that's a really common experience for people that have infertility or pregnancy loss to go into a little bit of that shame and blame. So you were feeling like somehow pushing it to home test, Sam, and going back somehow had triggered another bleed, which we know is not at all the cause, but at the same time. Yeah. yeah and I, I think right. I have a tendency I mean, towards internal locus of control, <laughs> which does me well in sure. some situations. Like I've got this, I'm in charge of this, I'm in control of it. But in then other situations like this that are unpredictable and out of your control, having an internal locus of control can be problematic. Um, yeah. So, Absolutely. so that was part of it. And is this my fault is something that I've heard from other folks that are struggling with infertility or loss or grief. I've heard that in lots of different ways, but I ended up carrying the baby for quite a while. And that just became part of my life of having to go to the ER. I ended up having to tell my clients that I was pregnant because I was showing. Uh, and that was also part of this sort of as a therapist, your, your personal world is often kind of left out of the therapy room to the best of your ability. But even something like telling your clients that you're pregnant brings your personal world in. But I also knew I was bringing in the possibility that I would have to tell them if I lost the baby. And hmm. I ended up going into labor. Um, my water broke early in the morning when I was a little over five months pregnant. And I knew that the baby wasn't going to make it. And my husband and I went to the hospital. And after getting cleared in the ER, it was clear that he hadn't made it. I remember being wheeled up into the hospital, into the elevator. And when I was there, um, someone congratulating me for having this baby because I was in labor and delivery. And then taking me in. And it was actually one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had was delivering this baby. Again, it was some of these psychological flexibility processes that I was that I was really embodying because I knew that I wanted to stay present in this moment with my husband, and um, it felt really important to to be there for my baby. I'd actually really bonded with him, and when the nurses asked me whether or not we wanted to see him and hold him afterwards, it was that same psychological flexibility that allowed me to say yes. It was like a momentous moment to say yes to that question and to hold him and look at him. And the closeness that I felt, the intimacy that I felt with my husband at that point in time, that sort of values and pain to being two sides of the same coin. How did you, in that moment, Diana, where your water has broken and you know that this baby is not going to make it. Can you describe for a moment what happened for you in that moment? What, what, was, what was going on in your mind? I knew when I went into labor, like I was laboring, that this was not, it was uh -huh. over. I knew he wouldn't be able to make it. I think like okay. anyone that's experiencing something really traumatic, you're just it's almost like you're just going through the motions of it. I mean, I don't think my frontal lobe or thinking, I wasn't doing a lot of thinking. I was just being through that time. I do think that one of the things that I really was successful at was around just letting go and being on the wave of it. And 
Part of that, I think, had to do with my relationship with my partner and the closeness that we have. I think part of it also had to do with the the community of support of the nurses that were there. And I feel like labor and delivery nurses see a lot. (laughs) They see more than anyone could humanly see. And that was actually really powerful for me to be held by them. I actually think about, you know, women birthing for, for hundreds and thousands of years in circles of other women. And reflecting back, I've, I've read, been reading and rereading this book by Francis Weller called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And in it, he talks about the five gates of grief. And I feel like I experienced all five of those in that hospital room that day. So the first gate being that everything you love, you will lose. The second gate uh, the, the being the grief around the parts of you that have not known love. So things like shame and also the sorrows of the world. That feeling of, I am among many women that have lost in this way. I wasn't alone in that. And then the fourth gate is about what you expected, but you didn't receive. And so I didn't expect it to be this way, and I didn't get what I was hoping for. And then finally, that fifth gate being ancestral grief, that not only was it the lot, my loss, but also my mom had a miscarriage. I imagine her mom had had a miscarriage and sort of all of that kind of flooding in as well. So that part of the story, I actually feel like I was super psychologically flexible in Alexis. I feel really proud <laughs> like how I showed up. Yeah. As you should, it's amazing to have that in yeah. that moment. In it's, that it's, the, it's the second half of the story that I don't feel so proud of. <laughs> which was what happened next. And I, so after you deliver a baby, what they don't tell you when leave the hospital is that your milk is going to come in and you're going to wake up in the middle of the night looking for that baby. And you're going to have the strongest urge you've ever had in your life to have another baby. It was the most intense feeling. Like I was on a mission. That was the, and I know you can relate to this, Alexis, you'll talk about this. Sure. Yeah. Many women. It was like, I was on a mission to have this baby. I went against doctor's orders. I got pregnant again right away. My body hadn't fully recovered from the delivery or from the pregnancy. And I got pregnant again. And when I got pregnant, I could not bond. I hadn't grieved and I couldn't bond. And then I had this whole other thing happening where I had to tell all my clients that I had lost this baby and then I was pregnant again. And that experience as a therapist is so difficult because it was, you know, you have a caseload of 12, 15 clients. I don't remember how many I had client after client. I had to go through that conversation with. And what did, what did that look like, Diana? I mean, even just the process of telling some of your clients that you're pregnant to begin with and then telling them that it didn't. I think this is really hard because in other settings, you could break down you could make it about you. You could have them come in for a sure. hug, right? This is their therapy space. I didn't want to right. take up their therapy space with my stuff. And that is really challenging. I didn't want my client to have to comfort me, yet they also were questioning. You know, I had taken some time off. I was pregnant, then I wasn't pregnant, right? And so I actually think that was also part of the, um, the shielding. You know, Joseph Sorochi talks about self as shield or self as prize. I think I did a lot of shielding during that time of not letting the grief in because it was too intense. It was too intense. 
it was such a delayed grief. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't really bond with the pregnancy. It's like, I'm not singing this one. I'm not, you know, I'm just going to go about my life because I don't know if I'm going to lose this one too. Well, you were scared to get yeah. emotionally connected, I'm guessing. And when he came out, my, my, my little guy that I have now, he came out screaming. He had colic. And so that was just insult to injury because he screamed and there was no way I could sue him. So then it became this next level of emotional avoidance around that. Right. And I think that my, my experiential avoidance around that was now I'm going to, now I have another thing to fix. And it became all about that, like fixing his colic, doing everything I possibly could controlling. And you know, I'm really into this concept of striving, Alexis, like it was my striving, like I'm a striver and I can strive at anything. And so I turned it into that and it really wasn't until, um, I remember like four months, he was like four months old and looking at him and seeing his little face looking at me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't taken the time to love this baby. And it's because I haven't taken the time to grieve my other baby. And so it was all wrapped up in one that I needed to grieve and I needed to love. And letting go of trying to fix it, grieving, feeling fully and loving all at the same time. And I just felt this massive exhale of acceptance. And then it, it it didn't shift his screaming. So he kept on screaming. (laughs) He just had to work through that, whatever it was developmentally, but it changed my relationship with him, changed my relationship with grief. And I was able to bond with him. And now, I mean, we have a super special relationship, uh, super special relationship, as you know, Alexis. Um, So that yeah. is sort of how it progressed and sort of the, the, the act being useful to me and then also at times not able to pick it up and use it, even though it was available to me. How did you get through the grief, Diana? I'm having a hard time picturing you, a working mom, toddler, infant, and, you know, home life, everything, all these balls that you have in the air finally just processing your grief what how how did you process your grief like how did how well, did that first, happen what, what what were the stages yeah i mean or, I, I don't know if there was stages as much as i think the first word that comes to mind or words that come to mind are Kristen neff's compassionate mess like i let myself just be a mm-hmm. bit of a mess for a bit And that meant just really kind of being a mess, like not doing, not striving, not being the perfectionist in every single domain of my life. Uh, I really honored him. And I talk later about this with Sunita, but creating sort of some rituals in our household of putting his things out, um, acknowledging him as part of our family in the sense that uh, I remember, I think about him. And started to allow myself to think about him. And there was this association between him and my my um, youngest child, right? So I couldn't think about my youngest child without thinking about him. They were they were associated with each other. And that's very acty, right? Sure. Like if you can't think about this without thinking about that, then you try not to think about any of it. So I allowed myself to think about it. And I allowed myself to talk about it. And I also started sharing mm-hmm. more with, uh, with my friends. So I think it was just more of an allowing him to be part of my experience rather than shutting him out. That was the real key. 
and then allowing myself to just be a little messy and not have it all together. Can't even imagine what that was like. And to have had such a spiritual moment through one of the most difficult moments of your life, do you think that there's something to that, that through such a tragedy and so much pain and so much struggle that you were able to have almost like a peak experience in the loss and a bonding experience and that maybe even it connected you and your partner even maybe you even closer together because you went through yeah, can you, I think can you, you speak to that it. a little bit you're such a positive psychologist <laughs> you know and that's well it's certainly certainly not the case right like so there are plenty of people who go through infertility and it tears yeah. the partnership apart they're not able to get through the loss or the difficulty they're not grieving in the same way they don't have the same goals or their goals change. And so um, I'm struck by how having a stillbirth, you, it was one of your yeah. peak spiritual moments for you and your, and your husband together. And I just imagine that, um, I, I don't know how you get that. Yeah, I think it definitely takes being fully present and opening your heart to the experience that full acceptance, the full um, compassion. And what's interesting is that I actually see now how that experience has prepared us for what we face now in our relationship. And then mm -hmm. what we face now in our relationship is going to prepare us for what we're going to face next. <laughs> you know, So I think that actually seeing mm -hmm. it as the opportunity to step through, um, you know, Gottman's uh, sliding door moments, like you have them, you have the option to step through or not. And we chose to step through. And I think mm -hmm. that every time I've chosen to step through into closer intimacy or vulnerability, it strengthens me and it strengthens our bond. Well, I just want to know a few things. Like if you were to take two things away from your experience, what would that those two things be? And what would you want others to know? You hurt so because you care. I think the first thing is you hurt because you care, which is a Stephen Hayes quote that we've used a lot on this um, podcast, but has rung true to me so many times in my life. And when I hurt really intensely, it's so helpful to remember there's something that I really care about here. And how can I turn to what I care about? Uh, I remember when they took the footprints of his feet, I, I ended up going to a Steve Hayes workshop not long after that. And I emailed those footprints to him to thank him, to thank him for his teachings, because we have many teachers that come into our life that don't know that they offer us like these profound principles that change our life for the good. So we hurt because we care and we can turn toward the care. And then I think the second um, really simple one is just um, to be gentle with yourself. And I wish I had been, I always wish I had been more gentle <laughs> with myself. I just need to continue to learn that lesson of just be gentle, just be gentle. And how can you be even a little bit more gentle? Because when, when we're gentle, we're better able to move through really painful experiences. So those would be the two. And Diana, how does striving fit into this? Mm. 
you know, these days I'm just interested in a different kind of striving. You know, striving has taken me down in so many different ways in my life. It can take me down in relationship to parenting or work or, and how do I actually put my whole heart into something and have it not be contracted or feel like I'm being pushed? And that's a different kind of striving. Maybe it's a skillful striving or a healthy striving or a compassionate striving. I haven't quite landed on what the words are yet, but um, I'm interested in transforming that. And I hope that women who are in their reproductive years and feel this pressure, I mean, this intense pressure, you have like a clock that is literally thinking because it can become another type of striving for us uh, that's unhealthy. So I support and and want to encourage women that feel that clock ticking to maybe take a look at the pressure and how can they practice more compassion towards themselves around that. Yeah. And I think you and I share this in common. Like we wanted, we wanted our babies, right? We wanted our children. And that was first and foremost on our minds. And, and yet sometimes what we wish for isn't, isn't what we expect it to be. You know, um, in my positive psychology classes, I hear from students all the time saying, I'll be happy when blank. I'll be happy when this. And in my own life, I felt the same way. I'll be happy when I finish my doctorate. I'll be happy when I pass the ECCC. I'll be happy when I get my first job or my first clients, when I get married, when I have my first baby. And I've surprised myself by having some goals where it just didn't pan out, like, I wished for something, wanted something, worked so hard for it, and it wasn't what it to be. Um, do you think that there's some truth to that for women healed and, uh-huh, and, and maybe don't get it where the people out there who want a family, want to grow their family, yeah. it just doesn't you know, work out. Having my son that I have now, I love him. I adore him. He's a blessing. And he didn't solve all my problems. So yes, the I'll be happy mm-hmm. when, oftentimes when we get that when, the goalpost just moves further out to the next when. And that I really find that the true satisfaction in life is, is if we can be in the present moment with ourselves, whatever that moment is, whatever it is. And in every moment, there is sweetness and there is sadness. There will always be both. Sometimes we're so taken by the sadness, we can't see the sweetness, or we're blocking off the sadness and we can't see the sweetness. Okay, Alexis, I need to turn the tables on you, my girlfriend. I want to hear your story. It's so different. It's so different and also so similar. Share with me. So my story began after I got married to my husband. We both wanted children and we got pregnant right away. And I, we were both just so excited that it happened so quickly. And I was about eight or nine weeks along when we saw going to work out, um, the baby was not viable. And, you know, it was just such a shock. I just didn't expect it to go that way. This is the first time I was pregnant. At the same time, my older brother had had his first child, this first grandbaby in our family. He and his wife had asked if I would be the godmother, so I had uh, flew out back east for this really grand, celebratory, joyous baptism. And in the Greek Orthodox tradition, you wear white. So I had this beautiful white dress 
um, my cute nephew, who's just a baby, who's in my arms, he was wearing white, and I'm surrounded by my family and loved ones in front of the altar. We're baptizing my nephew, and I am bleeding. Underneath my white dress, I am bleeding because I'm miscarrying. And I am not telling anybody that I'm miscarrying because who wants to hear that? And I didn't even tell anybody that I was pregnant because I didn't want to steal the limelight. So that was a, a, and there, um, you know, all innocence was lost. Like all the pictures of a happy, joyous kind of pregnancy. Now, now there was just anxiety and what's going to happen and what happens next. So five, and five weeks later, I had a DNC to remove the particles of conception. And my body, I now know, just does not release pregnancies. So if I get pregnant, um, I, I just carry naturally. I need, um, I need surgeries to help with that. I kind of figured from there that, that that was it. That was my loss. You know, I'm a numbers person. And so I thought lots of women have, have loss. And that was, my, that was my blip. And it's going to be smooth sailing from here. But um, especially when we had my first, our first child right after that, he was born, he was healthy. I thought, you know what? Like life is good. Everything's working out. Our first was one years old and I got pregnant pretty quickly. And... Once again, we were so excited and thrilled and quickly learned that the baby's heartbeat just was never going above 100. And the baby was not going to make it. And so it was summertime, taking care of a tosser, uh, socializing, and I'm visibly showing. My belly is protruded and I am doing all the things you're supposed to do when you're pregnant. And yet I'm knowing that I'm just waiting for this baby's heart to beat. What to is stop. that like, Alexis, that when you have this whole inner world happening that other people don't know about in terms of um, being able to connect or function or, you know, feel like you're uh, part of the world around you when you have this full inner experience that nobody knows about? Yeah, I mean, and I think you you know exactly what it feels like. It it, it feels yeah. very lonely, and you feel um, sadness, shame, questioning what you did wrong. What's wrong with your body? Why is it failing you in this way? Questioning every little decision, comparing it to your first child that was born healthy, and now wondering what the difference is. Uh you feel lonely. It's hard to get excited. It's hard to feel like the positive psychologist. You don't want to get up in front of people and talk about happiness research when you're going through loss. It's just elusive to you. And so then you feel even worse about that because here you're supposed to be preaching it. You're supposed to be acting it. And, and positive psychology is not uh, help, helping you out right now. No, it's not serving me in any sort of way. I just want to I just want to be with the loss and I want to be with the process of it. And that's my way through it, you know, to sit in the, sit in the muck. So to say it was, it was too much. So, uh, you know, for, for that, those years teaching abnormal psychology was actually more 
in my heart. So validating that abnormal psychology class when you're having it, when you're having a hard time. I remember that about grad school. I was like, Oh, I can relate to this stuff. (laughs) Yes. I was like, I like this stuff a little bit better right now. I can relate to it. Some things from positive psychology that served me well in those years. And I would say some of them was truly using my strengths, curiosity and perseverance to kind of go through each of the sequence of events and each process. And those strengths, I remember when I did an interview with you back in the day, back to like 54 or something like that, you gave us a link to a strengths inventory. So we'll put that in the show notes for this, because I feel like that strengths inventory is is a helpful one to identify what are your strengths that you may Mm -hmm. be able to lean on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then goal setting. I think that really helped me get through the, the pain of it all, the suffering of it all. It just helped me keep oriented towards that goal. Um, I worked with a specialist. I worked with an amazing therapist that was able to process grief and loss with me because people experience it differently. And my husband was experiencing the losses and the grief very differently than me. And so having someone just in my corner, um, it was extremely helpful. And nowadays there are many more resources available for women to feel connected in what they're going through. And at this point in time, I'm part of different uh, groups where we can support one another in our journeys and in our losses. And, and that's a really valuable place to be for just a little period of time. Hopefully you have someone else in your corner who understands that and gets that. Diana, you were one of those people for me. How excruciating that was and how hard it was on you to be in that waiting game. Like your life was on hold. I just remember that. By then I had already had uh, my youngest child. And so that kind of complicates things too. Like when, when I'm trying to support you through something, but then I have sort of what you want. And, and, mm-hmm. and it was really hard for me to... Um, you know, share my celebrations with you around that because I didn't want to hurt you. Uh, What was helpful from folks during that time? I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest things was that just, you know, I remember you checking in all the time and just seeing how I was doing. And that was the biggest thing to me, just checking in, how are you doing? And, And being in my corner for whatever my goals were in that moment. You know, um, not pushing an agenda, but just, okay, we're waiting for, you know, we're waiting for the baby's heart to die. Like, so we can move on from this and try again. Okay. Feeling like someone understands, understands the process, has taken the time to understand what loss looks like. And even if they don't know from their own personal experience, just the willingness to be curious and to ask. I found it hurtful when friends or family members would not take an interest and would not ask. So I just think that the willingness to be in the muck with me was so extremely helpful. And of course, the people that were better equipped to do that were, you know, therapists, obviously, and people who had also experienced similar loss. Um, It helped me keep my hope going. And so using my curiosity and my perseverance, which are top strengths of mine, (laughs) blessing and a curse. After that loss, I had to have two DNC surgeries. And I was like, enough of this. I don't want to suffer anymore. There's reproductive technology that I can take advantage of. And 
my husband and I were privileged enough to have the means to be able to explore some of those opportunities. And so we, I did a big workup. We went through two rounds of IVF and that didn't work. So again, more heartbreak and loss. We had more pregnancies and losses. I was told that my embryos are just not good enough. No bueno. And so basically I was told to, if you want to have a baby of your own, you're going to need to have some donor eggs. Wait, pause there. Cause you said the word not good enough. Like how did that hit you as a woman? Like your, your embryos aren't good enough. Your eggs aren't good enough. Wow. Yeah. And, and they, they say that to you. So wow. there's almost no way to not feel that. Like somehow your age and the statistics and you ha- went through two rounds of IVF failed. There's a problem with you, essentially. And if you want to ha- carry and have your own child in that way, then you're going to have to turn to a younger woman's ex. It was, it was a huge loss. And especially having had a child already, that was my genetics, my biology who in our eyes is just perfect. The idea of having someone else's uh, biology and contribution felt both like a gift, like, wow, this is amazing that someone else would be willing to, to donate their eggs so that we can create and build our family. And at the same time, it was also just this, well, it worked once before. Why isn't it not going to work again? And then this feeling of failure. I come from a long history of women who had a lot of children. Um, On my father's side, he was one of five. My mom tells stories of getting pregnant easily. I didn't hear, even though it probably did happen, in my immediate motherhood, my mom and my mom's parents, um, my dad's parents, I, I didn't hear those stories of loss. I didn't know any. If you could go back and talk to that version of you that was getting that information that your eggs aren't good enough, that you translate, of course, into like, that I'm not good enough or my body's not mm-hmm. good enough. And you could tell her something. And I'm just thinking about you telling it to her, but also telling it to the women that are listening to this episode. What would you tell them? And what would you tell you? That is complicated. Fertility is complicated. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that you never know. You don't necessarily get all the answers. I'm a curious person. I want to know why. Why did it fail? Why did I lose this baby? Why am I having a hard time with this? And, you know, we're not where we need to be with science to be able to kind of figure it out. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at the problem. It doesn't matter how many different experts you visit, how many different tests you run. It's tricky. When you overutilize your strengths, like curiosity or perseverance, it just can bring you down a path that's long, and dark, and, and may not result in, in answers. It underserves you. You've overextended your strengths. And that certainly was the case for me. I mean, I took it so far that we did do the donor embryos. We did try that. We had multiple pregnancies from that that failed. Uh, I ended up having endometriosis and endometriosis surgery. I learned so much about myself, but ultimately I didn't end up getting a baby. And at this point, we were five years into secondary infertility. 
And my husband and I had a concrete, decided, agreed upon a concrete timeline. I probably would have kept going. But this was our agreed upon stop point. And I was so angry that we had reached that mark and it left us without a baby. So to the women, I would say, I would say, you know, you don't always get the answers. You don't always know at why. And you have to let go of holding on to an outcome. And you have to let go to wondering why it didn't work out. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with us. It's not necessarily our bodies or our bodies failing us. Sometimes it's the environment failing us. And there's just this je ne sais quoi, right? About uh, babies, they're magic. Why did they happen? I don't know. And now I feel like I hold more of a space for um, spirituality or magic or just the wonder of it all, of why, why it doesn't work out sometimes and why sometimes it does. Um, I wish I could gift all the women that sense of peace that it's, it's, not, a, it's not necessarily about, about us. So you hit that five-year point. What I really remember having a conversation with you was actually with our group of psychologist friends that gathers every once in a while. And you really clearly saying, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm letting this go. What happened next? I was filled with anger. I was so angry that the process didn't work. I had always been of the mindset that effort equals results. And here I had tried, tried, and tried, and tried, and it didn't work. Um, I was so consumed with anger. And then set moments of sadness. I remember being in the shower and just crying and aching and feeling like, it just doesn't seem right. I can't believe this happened. Like, we don't have our second child. I felt this void and emptiness. I got rid of all the remaining baby things that I had in my house. I just wanted them out of the house immediately. I discarded everything, cribs, special blankets. Uh, I, I just wanted rid of all of it. We went to Greece. We went on vacation. We had fun. I drank alcohol. I mean, I resumed life as, uh, you know, a mom of, of one. And I tried to embrace and think of all the wonderful things that I was going to be able to do, all the wonderful opportunities that I was going to be able to provide for our son that I wouldn't have been able to provide if we had been a family of of four. And then I got pregnant and it was six months later. And this by now was my seventh pregnancy and I was completely numb. I was annoyed almost. I was frustrated. I was rather stoic about it in disbelief. Thought that, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to have another loss. This is the last thing I want. I was hesitant to tell my husband. And I only started to really embrace that I was pregnant and start to bond after the major milestones, 12-week checkup, the 20-week checkup. And then at 35 weeks, I remember feeling like this is really going to happen and, or this may really happen. And then when it was the moment of him coming and him arriving, I was just in so much joy, Diana. I was just in bliss. I was almost like in disbelief, like, oh my gosh, he's here. Like he, here he is. He's he's literally here. Somehow I didn't think it was really going to happen. 
Um, and now he's two years old. A little walking piece of magic. And I still look at him in wonder and think, I, I can't believe you're here, little man. How did you get here? It's almost like sometimes he comforts me. It's the strangest thing. It's almost like he knows how hard I tried and how much he was wanted. Uh, sometimes he takes his little hand and he pats me on the shoulder with it. Like this reassuring knowingness. Like he was, I was waiting for him in some sort of way. So if there were two takeaways, Alexis, you asked this question of me and I asked that question of you, if there were two takeaways from your experience and you can put on your, your positive psychology hat for this answer. I would appreciate that too. Um, personal perspective and positive psychologist. What would they? I would say to be patient. Uh, working through infertility, working through loss, it's a process. There's no guarantee. There's no one right answer. There are no choices that are made easily or quickly. And so to allow... Uh, room for patience is one of them. And that you're allowed to have all the feelings, anger, joy, sadness, hope. You're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to change your attitude. That there's a flexibility in, in what we want. And that we're not defined by it either. You know, we're not defined by whether or not we're mothers or not. Or whether or not we have our own children. There's way more going on. Or more than just that. So to hold ourselves patiently, lovingly, being very present with all the emotions and realizing that there's way more to us. Our worth is not defined by whether or not we're mothers. Thank you, Alexis, for sharing your story and taking this time with us. It's always wonderful to spend time with you in this way, this vulnerable, honest way. I really appreciate it. I hope it benefits many. I love it too, Diana. Thank you for having me. Excerpt from the Mama Sutra. Three weeks after Sierra died, I did yoga on our patio again. Above my mat, two wrens were pecking in the bird feeder hung in the branches of our apple tree. A hummingbird darted in and out of the bottle brush. I made my way slowly through the poses, as if I were walking through an earthquake-damaged house, lovingly assessing the damage. Afterwards, I lay on my back in corpse pose, watching a blue jay spray a shower of seeds to the ground. Looking at the beauty around me, I felt as if I were picnicking on the edge of an abyss, into which every now and then someone I loved would silently tumble. Lying there, I saw that I had two possible responses to Sierra's death. One was to contract in terror, to try to cling more closely to what is precious, wrap my hand tight around it, never let it go. An ultimately futile gesture, since it would all inevitably slip away. The other response would be to cherish what was precious, breath by breath, with an open hand, knowing it could be snatched away at any moment and that it would ultimately be gone forever. To cherish each moment, knowing that every day is a gift and a blessing, that it may be the last. The world is impermanent, 
but the world is also a sacred blessing. To hold both of those truths in our hearts at the same time is the razor's edge of practice. There is tremendous grief in Sierra's loss. I will never stop missing her. I will carry her in my heart for the rest of my life. But despite all the sorrow, what I have ultimately been left with is a sense of joy, of the precious miracle of incarnation, of the way love is not bound by time and space, of how the value of a life has nothing to do with how long it lasts, and of how the rippling effect of one life goes on and on long after a person is gone. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.